Welcome into episode 103 of the Natural Hattrick Podcast alongside Craig Morgan. I'm Luke Lipinski. No Jamie Eisner. He's just taking another day off. Why not? It's like his second one in the last six months, isn't it? It's getting out of control is yeah. what it is. So Jamie's not here. We I, Before we get into anything, Craig, got to talk some demographics here. These numbers were thrown oh, at my. us. It's, do you want to change your voice for this? I don't think we need to change anything. Appar- apparently we don't. Uh, I don't remember any of the other numbers. They were all pretty decent that were thrown at us before the show. I just remember that 48% of our listeners are female. 48 point something. 48.6. Yes. And with Jamie not here today, I'm guessing that number goes up to around 75% are female. Now, some of that is because a lot of girls like hockey. but uh, A lot of women. Yeah. But still, generally speaking, when you're doing an all-sports podcast... You run the risk of having about a 90% male demographic because you're just talking about sports. So that's why Jamie's not on the show because we want to push that number even higher. Mm. We got I, a lot. I also, I also like our numbers in Australia. That was surprising. That was that was very uh, reassuring too. We're, we've got a, a pretty good listening fan base in the country of Australia. So if you're out there, and also the continent. That's a country and a it's continent. Really confusing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if you're out there, why don't you clear that up for us? Um, yeah, so so good stuff that we heard before the show. Actually, we heard a bunch of other numbers that were good, too, but we're not going to waste your time with those. I think the most important thing is decent female listenership and lots of fans in Australia, which is what you're looking for in a hockey podcast, correct? <laughs> All right, we're going to talk Penguins hockey and Canadians hockey today. We're going to preview uh, those two teams to continue our summer series of previews. Got a couple guests coming on, Josh Yoey and Mark Antoine Godin on to talk about two of the Two of the elite contenders, I would say, in the Eastern Conference. Is Montreal considered elite? We'll find Depends out. who you ask. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to ask somebody today, so we're going to find <laughs> out. Uh, the big news, though, since we recorded episode 102, which really wasn't that long ago, is Leon Dreisaitl signing with the Edmonton Oilers eight years, $68 million. Uh, I wrote something up about this for FanRag Hockey and just kind of took a, a deeper look at what this does to the Oilers. Now, obviously, you have to sign Dreisaitl. You have to pay Connor McDavid. Uh, Craig, you were one of the first people two months ago that I heard make this point. Why are you doing this in this order? Do you think now, seeing how much each of these guys are making, that signing McDavid first is the reason Dreisaitl is getting so much? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 8.5 over eight years Look, Leon Dreisaitl may be a spectacular player. They may be right that with Connor McDavid as your number one center, this team's going to contend for cups. So yes. they may be thinking, all right, down the road, we have two critical pieces to any cup contender locked up. And you can, you can, you can justify it that way. But when you look at the money, he's making number one center money, first he of is. all. There, there aren't many guys who are making... I think it was Greg Wyshynski at Yahoo that pointed out this is the fourth highest second contract of the NHL salary cap era. The other players, Connor McDavid, Alex Ovechkin, Sidney Crosby, and Evgeny Malkin. So do you you put Leon Dreisaitl in that category yet? And let me also remind you that they're now making, these two players combined are making as much money as Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane. They have not won a cup. They haven't played for a cup yet. So you are really taking a gamble that these two guys are going to take you to the promised land. There's a lot to di- di- digest there to the point where I can't even speak, apparently. But when you <laughs> when you give a player that much money, and you're right, I mean, you, you have to make the comparison to the Blackhawks with Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane. But the thing is, when they got that much money, they got the $21 million combined, they're each making 10.5, they had already won three Stanley Cups. Now, 
They also haven't won a single playoff series since they each got that much money. That could be a coincidence. It absolutely could. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence. I have a reason. Stan Bowman. Okay. <laughs> but as much as, as, you know, McDavid is is better than Taves or Kane, but Dreisaitl isn't. So I trust Taves and Kane, and I've seen them win cups before. I trust them more to get it done with $21 million tied up in those two players than I do Edmonton. I don't know. I, I look at Dreisaitl, and, I, and, you know, you always talk about how you have to have a number one center to win a cup. Edmonton has that. They may have two number one centers. They That's may. entirely possible. And he's versatile enough where he can, he can play wing up on McDavid's line if Todd McClellan wants to shuffle things up. And Todd McClellan loves to shuffle things up. So they can either have a really overqualified number two center or a, an absolute power line with those two on the same uh, or trio, I guess. But he had 51 points last year and, and nine the year before in 37 games. I mean, there's just there's not a lot of a track record to give a guy 8.5 million. Yeah, a spectacular for postseason, right? Yeah, you're yeah, right. It's, great. And that's it. But that are you are you banking too much on potential here? Now, there's, there's an argument to be made that you shouldn't pay for past performance either. Uh, the argument that you just made with Taves and Kane. What have they done since they started making that money? Well, there, there's arguments to be made on both sides. Well, Kane, but, Kane, in fairness, did win MVP. Yeah, true. And if if you get three years down the road, four years, five years down the road, and Edmonton's won a couple cups, nobody's going to blink about this anymore. Nobody's no. going to care because it was worth it at that point. But again, it's a big gamble. And there are five centers right now who have bigger cap hits than Leon Dreisaitl. He's a number two center. There are five guys. Jonathan Taves, Anze Kopitar, Evgeny Malkin, Sidney Crosby, Steven Stamkos. There's only 10 guys in hockey, nine guys in hockey, because he's tied with Stamkos that have a bigger cap hit. Nine players in all of hockey. Steven Stamkos' cap hit is $8.5 million, so is Leon Dreisaitl. That's 10th in the NHL. Now, they're both going to drop by one next year when Connor McDavid's making the most of anybody in the NHL because it is worth pointing out this upcoming season, McDavid's still on his entry-level contract. Right. But he's already signed past that for $12.5 million a year. <laughs> I, I, those guys, that I, I just, those names that I just mentioned, those are the elite of the elite in this league. Is Dreisaitl there yet? Wow. That's, you're saying he's going to be. That's what you're saying. He is going to be that level of NHL player. Now, you can look down the road, too, and say the cap's going to go up. In a few years, this cap hit isn't going to look as big as it does now. So th- th- that argument needs to be put out there as well. But still, with the amount of money that you have tied up in these two players— you're gambling an awful lot on them. And oh, by the way, you already traded Taylor Holloway, who really would have helped this team. Yeah. I guess that's the the bigger picture outlook you have to take. If you're just telling me in a vacuum there's no salary cap, is Leon Dreisaitl worth $8.5 million to lock him up right now? You can, you can certainly convince me of that. But there is a salary cap, and it's not just McDavid. And this is where it gets concerning for the Oilers, I think. You've got Milan Lucic tied up for six more years at $6 million a year. Oops. You've got Ryan Nugent Hopkins tied up at four more years for $6 million a year. You've got four defensemen tied up for at least four more years at at least $4 million a year, some of them more. So you can't be going out there and signing any really good players for the next four years, and you can't sign anybody long-term. I mean, what happens if Jesse Pugliarvi is the player that he was supposed to be where they drafted him last year. That would help a lot. It would help a lot now, but you're probably not going to be able to keep him in two years, right? Because <laughs> you can't, you're not going to be able to sign anybody else long-term. This is your core. And so I know if you're an Oilers fan, you're looking and saying, well, yeah, of course I want McDavid and Dreisaitl as my core. That's a better core than 95% of the teams in the league. 
I totally get that. You probably got McDavid. You can make a case even at a bit of a discount. But when you take a broader view and you realize your core is actually about eight players, I'm not sure how comfortable I am with the other six. They do have some cap space in their defense. I, looking at uh, cap friendly right now, they're, they're, today's cap hit is $66 million, of course. When McDavid's contract kicks in, it goes up, but then you have a number of free agents, so you have to make decisions on those guys. So they might have some room to maneuver here, and they, in my opinion, still need to add to that blue line if you're looking anywhere. But they, they could also use another score. Maybe Pliarvi ends up being that guy, but I think you need another score, which Taylor Hall was, and you need another <laughs> defenseman if you're thinking you want to get to that cup level. I don't know how much cap space you're really going to have next year. It's, it's hard to do the math ahead on the fly. I mean, you're going to be adding about $11 million a year with McDavid. You're right. You're going to lose some of these guys, but you're going to lose guys like Mark Latestu and UC Jokinen and maybe Patrick Maroon. But you're going to be up against the cap for a long time now. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just because of McDavid and Dreisaitl. Again, you'll pay for those guys, but why did you give Milan Lucic $6 million a year and he's still signed for six more years? What can he really do to justify that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what he can do. Uh, it's just, just a bad contract. It's... Short of, of somehow single-handedly petitioning the league to raise the salary cap, there's nothing Milan Lucic can do to live up to that, that uh, contract now in Edmonton because they just don't have any more room to spend, uh, spend money. But we'll see. I mean, the flip side is Edmonton set up the middle for a long time. And even if they overpaid for Dreisaitl, he sure looks like a really good number two center. It sure is nice to have a number one and number two center locked up, elite players. And I do think Leon Dreisaitl is terrific in that role. If you can have him as a number two center, you're very happy. So they have two critical pieces right there. I have to think one person that didn't like the signing was Don Sweeney out in Boston (laughs) because he still doesn't have David Pasternak signed. And I'm guessing the asking price just went up a little bit more. Now, Pasternak's not a center, uh, but he just had a monster season last year as well. He's a restricted free agent. There's a lot of RFAs actually still sitting out there. But you know, Dreisaitl had the uh, the 29 goals and the 77 points. Pasternak had, what, 36 goals last year. Yeah, he's, he's a critical part of that team. He's got to be a critical part of their future. So uh, Don Sweeney did say he's not trading him, and I, I want to broadcast that to the Coyotes fans that I know will listen to this. He's not coming to Arizona. It's not happening. Even if he were available in a trade, I don't think the Coyotes are at the point in their evolution where they would make that deal. I mean, you could look at his agent and say, what the heck are you talking about? But they don't know what they have at the center position yet, and they really need to find out some more things about this young core before they go committing big money to a player like that. Maybe that's something that happens a couple years down the road, but right now I don't think they're at that point in their evolution. That's a good point to make because you're right. Pasternak, he had 34 goals, not 36 last year, but 34 goals, 36 assists, 70 points. He's only 21. So, you know, when you first hear that, you're like, well, you're not, it's not like you're trying to rush the timeline along if you sign a guy that's 21 years old that just put up 34 goals. But not knowing for sure what you have at center is a, a point you really have to look at. Like, I know that people will hear that at first glance and be like, well, the Coyotes, what are they? Are they just being cheap? First of all, Boston's not trading David Pasternak, so this right. is all hypothetical yeah. anyway. Right. It's not a matter of being cheap. It's a matter of you're going to have a bunch of these young players you have to pay very shortly. Yes. And what does he do to your salary structure if he comes in as the highest paid player, which he would, right? Oh, yeah. So... Are you okay with that? And then what does it do moving forward with those other players who see that David Pasternak is now your highest paid player? And some of these players, they presumably believe are going to be 
better than David Pasternak. So suddenly you start getting down that road and wondering, okay, are we committing our money in the right places? Just to throw some of those names out, obviously Anthony Duclair is an RFA still right now. He's not going to make a ton of money. But Max Domi is an RFA next summer. Uh, you can sign Oliver ekman Larson next summer. He's a UFA the following summer, but you don't want him getting the UFA status because every team in the league will pounce on a defenseman like that. And when OEL is a UFA, you've got what Clayton, or not Clayton Keller yet, but Brendan Perlini, Christian Dvorak will both be RFAs. The following year, Clayton Keller and Dylan Strome will be RFAs. Lawson Krause is also an RFA with Brendan Perlini and Christian Dvorak. Those guys aren't all going to be big money guys, right. but if this is your core that you've drafted and you, and you want to build this group, then you want to, the biggest thing is, is to not only develop them, but then also pay them when their contracts are up. Exactly right. So It's amazing how many unsigned RFAs there are still. Zemgitz Gergensen's re-signed with Buffalo and obviously Dreisaitl, but aside from that, I, I think we talked a couple weeks ago about the other RFAs that are still out there, and they're still out there, and camp is, camp is getting close. <laughs> camp is very close, right? For the Coyotes... We're less than a month away. We're not, I mean, and the rookies are even sooner. Rookie camp for the Coyotes, as we record this, is less than three weeks away, which makes me all sorts of happy. But also, yeah, if you don't have your guys signed, now would be a good time to start working on that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you mentioned that list of RFAs around the league. Sam Bennett is not signed. It's not just David Pasternak and, and, and you know, up until a couple days ago, Leon Dreisaitl. Uh, Bo Horvat, who's... Vancouver's best player at this point, correct? Unless I'm forgetting somebody that they randomly signed. Uh, Alex Wenberg mm-hmm. in Columbus, he's, he's pretty impressive Connor too. Connor Brown. Connor Brown. Underappreciated player in Toronto because they had so many crazy rookie yeah. performances, but very good player. Damon Severson in New Jersey. They don't have a whole lot of guys to play his position, so they're probably going to need to get him signed. And uh, Andreas Athanasiu. You love saying that because you know I can't. Once I learned how to say it, I just say it to everybody, <laughs> whether they're a hockey fan or they know what I'm talking about or not. Uh, what about Yarmer Yager? Is he going to get signed? He's not an RFA, but he can't be done, right? Uh, he's he's the kind of guy that somebody might add right at camp, you know, when they're looking to fill a piece that they couldn't fill elsewhere. I hope so. That's that's what I want to believe. Yeah, he's not even I 46 want, yet. <laughs> exactly. And we know he wants to play till 50. He told Panrag Sports that last year. He did. <laughs> He told his Colombian friend that. His Colombian friend, Craig Morgan. Yeah, so I... I we need to retell I, that story at the start of every season so yeah, people understand. Yeah, Yager is just the kind of guy you want to see playing hockey. He makes the game more fun. And he still scores. Yeah, he's still got those... I mean, down low, he's still got those crazy hands. He still has crazy skills. He may not be able to get up and down the ice like he used to, but he still has insane reach and he has skills. Yeah, maybe I'm not... He's so smart. He's such a smart player. He is. He's savvy. That's the word, right? We'll go with that. He, um, you know, he may not want to play in the three-on-three overtime scenarios, but was that last year when he was just (laughs) laying on the ice? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, he still had, I believe he had 20 goals last year. The laptop has quit on me at this point. Episode 103 is when it just finally gave up. But uh, Yager can still, I don't know, it, it depends what position... What team, rather, he would land on. But I got to think he still has another 15-goal season in him. And you're not going to pay him that much. Right. So what are we waiting for here? Come on, somebody get on that. Somebody. I think you're right. Somebody during training camp is going to look around and say this is... You know, Do you think we, he'd we play in Vegas? Play. Would he want to do that? It's a, you know you're not making the playoffs. I don't know. That's a tough call. If that was his only option, I think he would. I'd love to see Yager in Vegas. It would make sense for Vegas, too, right? Go out there and bank on a guy that has been playing in the league for 26 years off and on. Yeah, that's uh, that, that does make sense on a lot of levels. How about this? Before we get to our first guest, 
the MVP odds were put out by Vegas, since you mentioned Vegas. Have you seen this list, Craig? I don't, I don't think I you have. I haven't seen this list, do you, actually. Do you want to try and family feud some of the oh, top five? God. Well, for the in terms of best odds for winning MVP? Yeah, you don't need to give me the odds, just players. Right. I'm guessing Connor McDavid's at the top. He's number one. Sidney Crosby? He's number two. See, but you already told me this off the I, air. Well, so I only now, told okay. you number three. So you, you did tell me number three is Austin Matthews, which... That's a little shocking, uh, a little and, ambitious. But, but we both guessed that he probably already has 10 votes in the bank from Toronto <laughs> yeah. before the season has started, so it makes sense it on some level. It doesn't even matter. He could take a year off to go back to Switzerland. <laughs> He's getting those 10 votes no matter so what. four and five for MVP. Really, just the Austin Matthews was the one I okay. wanted to point out. Who are out. four and five? I'm curious. Four is Ovechkin. Okay. Uh, who I almost feel like people have kind of forgotten about. No, now. They're I just don't think like, he's winning the MVP no. because I don't think Washington's going to be nearly as good this year. And if even if Ovechkin, even if Washington has a better record than Toronto and Ovechkin has better numbers than Matthews, Matthews is getting more votes than Ovechkin. We're just, I think we're at the point where until Ovechkin wins the Stanley Cup, people have just sort of set him aside, as unfair as that might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, number five is Patrick Kane. Okay. I would have guessed that, actually. Six is Vladimir Tarasenko. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. Well, Steven Stamkos way down the list. Evgeny Malkin is seventh. But just interesting to see Matthews already at number three. And McDavid already at number one. I mean, I know he just won last year, but those guys are about as good as advertised. I know I've said this before on the air that I really want to see, although I'm not sure I want to see it now with how diminished the Blackhawks are as, a, as an organization, especially on the blue line. And, oh, yeah, they gave up Artemi Panarin this offseason. No big deal. No big deal. Um, I'd love to see a Pittsburgh Blackhawk final just once. I, I can't believe it hasn't happened. Each team's won three cups. They haven't faced each other in the cup final. It's insane. And I Since can... 2010, each yeah. team has won three cups. They haven't faced each other. That, that is absurd. Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think, I don't think the Blackhawks are getting to the cup final. But my alt cup final, if, if we're going to move on to the next era, let's just see Toronto and Edmonton uh, play in the cup final. Uh, let's see it. I, I kind of... I kind of like the passion that comes from north of the border, knowing that a Canadian team hasn't won a cup since 93. If Toronto and Edmonton play in the Stanley Cup, this would assure it, yes. one of them is going to win the Presumably, Stanley Cup. Yes. Yeah, but that I, I do love that matchup between those two. Uh, back to what you were just saying, though. Penguins, Blackhawks, Stanley Cup. So your options are they meet, neither one of them gets there, Pittsburgh gets there, or Chicago gets there. What's the, the most likely in your mind? Pittsburgh gets there. Unless... I almost feel like neither one of them's getting there this year. Well, it's going to be really hard for the Penguins to three-peat. That's just, I mean, repeating is hard enough, but doing it three times in a row... And yeah, they're, they're finally diminished a little bit this yeah. year, not to the extent of With Chicago. the Blackhawks, I, I mean, I love having Brandon Saad back. I think he's going to help Jonathan Taves a lot. I think Jonathan Taves is going to surprise some people this year. I think he's incredibly motivated. But you look at that blue line, they need help. They need serious help here. The only thing that I look at when I think, okay... How can, they, how can they improve their blue line in the cap situation they're in? They're going to get cap relief from Marion Hosa during the season. So maybe at the trade deadline, that's the time when the Blackhawks can go out and get that defenseman that helps their blue line. Does that make them a cup contender? I don't know. They still have some incredible talent up front, but you took Artemi Panarin out of the mix to bring Brandon Saad back. And oh, by the way, you lost Marion Hosa, who's kind of a good player. Yeah, he was pretty good at hockey. He's a, a surefire Hall of Famer. They're going to go out and get Will Butcher. <laughs> he's just out there for, he's this year's Jimmy Vesey although in fairness to him he's he has not uh, made it into a circus like I don't know if that was Jimmy Vesey's fault last year or whatever just what happened but but Butcher seems a little more 
he seems to be handling this with a more humble attitude, but there are a lot of teams pursuing him, if you don't know. He's basically a, he's a rookie free agent out of Denver, but he won the Hobie Baker last year. Like yeah. Teams want him, so that's, uh, that's somebody to keep an eye on as well. Anything else before we get to uh, Penguins and Canadians talk? No, I'm all depressed talking about the Blackhawks' lack of chances, so let's Sorry. move on to our I, guests. I didn't mean to, to throw that out there. I think you did. All right, well, then here we go with the Penguins. All right, we continue our uh, summer preview series here with the team that's won the last two Stanley Cups. We're talking now to Josh Yoey of DK Pittsburgh Sports. He's the Penguins beat writer, talking Pittsburgh Penguins. Josh, how you doing today? How's the offseason treating you? Well, when you cover back-to-back Stanley Cups, uh, there's not much of an offseason two years <laughs> in a row. So I'm still a little burned out from the season. But, hey, it was fun to cover, so I'm not complaining. I think Luke really liked introducing you as the guy that's covered the last two Stanley Cup champions because he is... Well, I can't even say a closet closet Penguins fan. He's been out of the closet for a long time, actually. Well, you guys outed me on the show. It's not my fault. I'm from Pittsburgh. I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to like them. All right. Well, let's let's kick this off, Josh. And, and as long as we're talking about back to back Stanley Cups, why not a three peat? Nobody's repeated. Nobody had repeated in 19 years. The Islanders were the last team to win three in a row back in '83. What are your thoughts on the possibility of that happening for the Pittsburgh Penguins? You know, I will not discount that it could happen. Uh, obviously, the odds are against them. We know how hard it is to do once, let alone twice, let alone let alone three times. But uh, the first thing I tell people when they ask me if the Penguins can win three in a row, I say, sure, they can, because they just won the Stanley Cup without Chris Letang, who, in my opinion, when healthy, is one of the five best defensemen in hockey. So you consider it, they get him back into the lineup, and, yeah, they've lost some people, no question. But, but his impact alone is a very big thing. You have Crosby and Malkin who are so eager to make history, still very much in their prime. And when I look at the rest of the Eastern Conference, I certainly don't see anyone on paper who's better. And in fact, the one team who may have been better on paper, the Washington Capitals, certainly is not now. So I'm not saying I would bet on them to do it, but I don't think it's crazy to think that they could pull it off. And I think they're clearly still one of the best teams in hockey. See, I already like having Josh on the show because I've been banging the drum for Chris Letang being underrated for about two years now, and uh, I'm, I'm getting some strange looks around the studio. But it's good to hear that from from somebody that's in Pittsburgh. Josh, what has made Mike <laughs> Sullivan so effective since he took over December of 2015? I mean, the team did an absolute 180, and they, and they haven't looked back. Well, first of all, speaking of Letang, I was actually talking with Mike Sullivan yesterday, and Sullivan told me that he thinks when Letang is healthy, he's one of the three best defensemen in hockey. So... Uh, he's smarter than I am, so I think he must be onto something. Oh my but, God! Uh, Do you want me to get you guys a room here? <laughs> <laughs> he's oh, one step from the north. Totally underrated. I really do. No, we. But, I um, agree with you here, but it's it's just hard hearing this when I have to look at Luke every day. So <laughs> I understand. But as for Sullivan, uh, the guy is an extraordinary communicator. He was hired on December twelfth, twenty fifteen, and. I still remember the conversation I had with him that day, and I thought to myself afterward, like, whoa, this guy's impressive. And the first thing he did, he gets to Pittsburgh that day, and the next day after practice, he has individual meetings with Crosby, Malkin, Latang, and Kessel, those four guys. And none of them were playing particularly well at the time. And he said to all of them, he said, I want to know what's wrong, and I want to know why you're not playing better, and we're going to talk about how we're going to fix each of you. And that's what he did on the very first day. And after about two weeks, they all started playing the way they were capable of, and the Penguins have never looked back. So he just has a way of dealing with people and of of getting them to respect him 
and also getting the most out of what those guys have to offer. And when you coach the Penguins, you have to get the best out of the superstars, obviously. And that's what Mike Johnson and Dan Bilesman in the end failed to do. And, boy, when you look at what the best players have done under Sullivan, you could not question them. What, what were those fixes? And was it just better coffee? What, what happened to, to turn their seasons around? Well, you know, it was all different. I, I'll specifically look at Crosby. Um, you know, Crosby, we forget now, perhaps, but he was in a horrible slump. He, he scored six goals in 32 games under Mike Johnston. And I, I will suggest that Sidney Crosby, after the concussion that, that wiped out, he missed over 100 games in 2011-2012. When he came back from all of that, he was still the best player in the league, I would say. But I believe he became far more of a perimeter player. He did not go to the net with the reckless abandon that I think he did in his younger days. I think he was protecting himself to some extent. And you certainly can't blame him for that. But what Mike Sullivan did when he took over, he said, Hey, Sid, I want you standing 10 feet away from the net. That's where you're at your best. I don't want you on the perimeter, especially on the power play. But just in general, you're, you're probably the best player of all time down low and around the net. So that's where I want you. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Crosby has arguably been the best goal scorer in the National Hockey League during the past year and a half. Um, he is at his best down there, and that has really become a staple in his game. Watch all the goals he scored last year with 44 goals. He wasn't scoring from 40 feet very often. That's just not his game. And so I think Sullivan got it back into Sid's mindset that he needs to be that guy working down low. And, again, you just can't question the results. You know, along the lines of coaching, how big of an impact do you see losing Rick Tockett having on this team? And then I guess the flip side is what sort of impact can Rick Tockett have on the Coyotes here in Arizona? Well, I'll tell you what, I respect Rick an awful lot. Um, this is a guy who he's a good human being. And, you know, we all know he's, he's had some, made some mistakes off the ice and had some issues and was out of the league for a while. But I'm really happy for him. I'm glad the Penguins gave him that opportunity to get back into the league. That was really Mario Lemieux and, and the friendship that he has with Rick was the reason that happened. Um, this is a very gifted hockey coach. Uh, he specializes in working with forwards. Um, he specializes in working with charismatic personalities uh, or unique personalities, I guess I should say. Um, he was essentially Phil Kessel's personal coach at Pittsburgh. Um, you know, Phil can be a headache for head coaches, and Mike Sullivan will, will admit as much. And so Rick's job became to completely take care of Phil Kessel and, and to work with all the forwards, and he did so brilliantly. They swear by him. He's a wonderful offensive mind. Uh, this is a guy who played with Lemieux, played with Gretzky, and he thought the game the way they did. That's one of the reasons he was effective playing with those guys. So he just understands offense. He understands how to score. And when you look at the Coyotes, there is some legitimate young talent on that team. I guarantee you he will make those guys better. Now, will they be a good team overnight? I don't know about that. They have a ways to go, certainly. But he'll make the uh, Max Domies of the world better. There's not a doubt in my mind. So I think it was a good hire. I know he loves that area. He loves the market out there. He's a big believer that hockey can work in the desert. So uh, I saw it up close the last couple of years. He's a heck of a good hockey coach. Sidney Crosby swears by him. Uh, he has just all the respect in the world for him. And I think Rick will have success there. As long as you brought up Phil Kessel, take us inside that relationship. What made it work so well, and what? How will it impact Kessel not having him around? You know, both both in his play and and then maybe his future. What does his future look like in Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's going to be interesting with Phil. You know, he turns thirty in October, and I'm not fat shaming here, but he's not. You just 
consider what we know about Phil, he's not necessarily the kind of guy who's going to age gracefully. Um, speed is such a big part of his game. He can still skate. I don't know how he'll skate at 34. It's going to be interesting to see if he's he's here in Pittsburgh for the long term. I can tell you he has a great relationship with Tockett. Um, you know, Sullivan, I wouldn't say it's a bad relationship with Sullivan, but I know he, he kind of pushes Sullivan a little bit. And uh, interesting, I just wrote about this, in fact, on August 1st. Mike Sullivan got on a plane, took a flight to Toronto, and uh, met with Phil Kessel and took him out to lunch, and they spent the day together. And uh, I asked Mike why he did it, and he said basically, well, he said my relationship with Phil wasn't as bad as people make it out to be, but it, it wasn't great, and I want to make it better. And he said, well, especially with Taka gone, it's more up to him to deal with Phil and to be on the same page. He said, you know, Phil's an alpha male, and I like that about Phil. He said, you got to have alpha males to win in this game. So I, I understand that he's a unique personality, but he said, we've got to be on the same page. So he felt like it was a good meeting, and, and it'll certainly be worth monitoring moving forward. But uh, as John Tortorella once famously said, uh, Phil is a different kind of cat. And uh, true words have never been spoken. I don't think Phil's a bad guy. And I can tell you his teammates actually kind of like him. They're kind of amused by him more than anything, but they do like him. He's not a bad teammate. He's just Phil. You know, he's not going to back check. He's not going to go to the corners. You kind of know that going in with him. And that's what drives Sullivan crazy. But, you know, he's working on making that relationship better. So did did they eat hot dogs out of a Stanley Cup together for that lunch? Is that what was going on? Or? I, I could, you know, it's funny. I wanted to ask Sullivan really bad what they had for lunch, but I didn't have it in me to ask. So I, I did ask him. I, I asked Sullivan what he thought about Phil with the hot dogs in the Stanley Cup, and he just shook his head and he said, "That's Phil. I don't know what else to say." So uh, he, he was clearly clearly uh, appreciated the fact that Phil has a sense of humor about the hot dog thing. But uh, I'm not sure what they had for lunch, unfortunately. Uh, one of the the players that's very familiar with Phil Kessel, of course, is Evgeny Malkin. He had another great year. Uh, of course, he was left off the 100 greatest NHLers of all time. Josh, in your mind, does he get the full credit he deserves, uh, both locally and nationally? Um, I think locally he does. Uh, nationally, no, uh, not by a long shot. I, you know, I don't mean to sound like a homer, but I thought it was just a joke that he wasn't on that top 100 team. I, I was actually in Los Angeles during the All Star break when that team was announced. And Mario Lemieux was just livid. Uh, Jim Rutherford was one of the voters on the committee. Oh, boy, was he unhappy. Um, I think Malkin is probably the most underappreciated player of this era. Uh, to me, in the last 15 years or so, I'm not going to include McDavid yet. He's only been in the league a couple of years. But I think the best three players in the league have been Crosby and Ovechkin and Malkin. I think Crosby's clearly number one, of course. Um, between Ovechkin and Malkin, I actually think that's a pretty compelling argument one way or the other. Um, Malkin, and the thing to me that, that jumps out about Malkin, if you look at his numbers all time, and, and the times that Crosby has been out with injuries, and that's been a pretty big chunk of time, Malkin actually produces more points per game in those games than he does when Crosby's in the lineup. So for anybody you know, who thinks that Malkin is somewhat a creation of Crosby or just takes advantage of getting to play second defensive pairings, he actually produces more when sits out at the lineup. That That's extraordinary to me. I, I think he's 13th or 14th all-time in points per game. Uh, to me, he's one of the 50 best players of all time. And in terms of pure physical ability, I've always said he has more physical talent than Crosby. Frankly, he's a bigger man. He shoots the puck harder. He's, he's a more graceful skater. Now, Crosby just has a drive about him that makes him unique, that just separates him from everyone else, which isn't to say that Malkin's lazy because he's not. 
but uh, the guy's an incredible hockey player, and I, I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. All right, with training camp approaching, let's take a look at this roster, and let's start with some of the losses. Marc-Andre Fleury is probably the most publicized one, a great story there, uh, a very heartwarming story there, but some other players as well, in Kunitz, Nick Bonino, Trevor Daly, Ron Hainsey. Can you talk about what those losses might mean for this roster? Well, yeah, and they just lost Matt Cullen to the Minnesota Wild right, the other day, and they too. were really hoping he would come back. Um, the single biggest problem for the Penguins right now is in the penalty killing department. Uh, Cullen and Nick Benino were their two best penalty killers, I would say, at forward, along with Carl Hagelin. So uh, two of your best three penalty killers up front are gone. Ron Hainsey was a very valuable penalty killer. Trevor Daly killed penalties. Chris Kunitz killed penalties sometimes as well. So, so essentially you're losing five guys who helped the penalty killing unit. Um, they haven't really been adequately replaced yet in that regard. So that's a major issue just in terms of goal prevention. Not to mention Marc-Andre Fleury is a pretty darn good backup goaltender. So I worry about the penalty killing for them. And um, for what it's worth, I think this gets overblown to some extent, but you talk about good locker room guys. My gosh, Cullen, Benino, Kunitz, um, Trevor Daly, these are all guys who could have Caesar A's on their sweater. I mean, they, they really are. Now, I think with the Penguins, even though they still have a lot of young players, they have young players who have two Stanley Cup rings now. So I would think they probably don't require the leadership they did a couple of years ago. Maybe those guys can be leaders in their own right. But uh, they need a number three center pretty badly right now. And they might need a number four center. Carter Rowney will start in that role. Um, never really been able to score a lot at the NHL level in limited action, however, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, in terms of goal prevention, yeah, they've got a couple of holes to fill right now, I think. Uh, but they're still going to score a ton of goals. We know that. You know, that, that third-line center spot, is there a clear path you see to them filling that? Is there Are there players they're looking at? Are they going to wait until the season gets going? Um, well, Jim Rutherford's going to make a trade at some point. They really don't have any internal options. Um, Mike Sullivan actually said the other day that you know there's a chance Jake Gensel could fill that role temporarily. They want him being Crosby's left wing, certainly, with the success they've had. Why wouldn't they? But uh, Gensel is a center by trade, so he could do it for a while. They don't want to do that. Uh, They want to trade for a third-line center. Who that guy will be is anybody's guess. It's not going to be Matt Duchesne, I can tell you that. Um, There was some buzz this summer about Jordan Stahl, and I bring him up because Jim Rutherford just adores Jordan Stahl. He always has. I tried to trade for him in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago. He did trade for him in Carolina a few years back. Um, the only problem with Jordan is he makes $6 million a year. So from the salary cap standpoint, uh, it really just isn't reasonable to make that happen. Penguins only have about $3 million in cap space right now. But uh, they're going to go out and get someone. Rutherford wants it to be before the season. He said he can't guarantee that it will. He wants it to be the right deal. But uh, it's certainly by far the biggest hole on their roster right now. All right, as long as we're talking about additions, let's talk about some that the Penguins did make defenseman Matt Hunwick, goaltender Antti Niemi, and of course Ryan Reeves. We want to ask you about that one as well. Uh, yeah, we'll start with Reeves. That's the fun one. Um, <laughs> for anybody who wants to know why they acquired Reeves, uh, the Penguins have been very transparent about it. Um, Sidney Crosby took an absolute beating in the playoffs. He had two concussions this past season, and the Penguins, whether people agree with them or not, the Penguins feel like the league does not do enough to protect Crosby and its stars in general. 
And I know there's a faction of fans that I already talking about. Every time Crosby gets breathed on, it's a penalty. And there's also a faction of fans, mainly in Pittsburgh, maybe that says that this guy takes a beating every game and a lot of it isn't called. Um, and the Penguins were sick of it. Uh, even Bobby Orr, by the way, during the conference finals, I was told Bobby Orr called Gary Bettman and just went crazy on him because of the beating Crosby was taking. He thought it was embarrassing. And, and Jim Rutherford was all kinds of worked up about it. So they actually had their minds made up during the playoffs that they were going to go out and get Ryan Reeves. And they gave up a good bit for him. They gave up a first-round pick and Oscar Sundquist, a two-way center they really like, young prospect. But um, Reeves basically is brought in to protect Crosby. That's the single biggest reason why they acquired him. They don't think he's a goon, and I don't think he is either. The guy can play a little bit. Uh, He actually can't skate for a guy that big. But um, he's there to make Crosby feel more comfortable, and I assure you he will. Uh, Crosby likes having enforcer types in the lineup. He loves when Tom Sestito's in the lineup. He has told me before, it just makes him more comfortable. And the Penguins know that, and as long as he's comfortable, they're happy. So that's why Ryan Reeves is with the Penguins. Okay, about, what about Hunwick and Niemi? What are your thoughts there? But, you know, Hunwick, he's just okay. He, I thought he was pretty solid with the Leafs. He's a guy who can skate, and that's important for the Penguins. Um, I don't have, everybody wants defensemen who can skate nowadays, of course. But uh, especially with the way they play, they're such of a fast team. Uh, they just felt like he was a good fit. Uh, he's going to, going to be asked to play the right side. Uh, that will be interesting. He can play the right side. He prefers the left. Uh, but the Penguins are pretty stacked on the left side with uh, Dublin and Cole and Mata. So Hunwick will start out the season as the number six defenseman on the right side. Uh, they do like him. And Niemi, you know, he's not the goalie he was a few years ago. His numbers in Dallas weren't very good. Uh, the Penguins do feel like, however, that Dallas was not a good defensive team and that maybe uh, inflated his numbers a little bit. And they feel like playing in Pittsburgh, if he plays, you know, 25 games behind Matt Murray, they think he'll be fine. Josh, when you look at Matt Murray, I mean, not a lot of goalies have won two Stanley Cups as a rookie, but he also has never started more than 47 games in regular season. Is there any concern with him being the clear number one? Well, he's the clear number one, no question. But in terms of durability, I guess there's a little bit of concern. Uh, until he actually proves he can do it, uh, there will be concern. He, he is not a guy who has endured any catastrophic injuries. But he does get dinged up a good bit. Um, he's had a concussion or two. He's had the, I think he broke his hand in the World Cup last year. Uh, he's just had a lot of minor injuries that keep him out for a week here, a couple of weeks there. Um, oh, he's the number one goalie. I mean, he, he's entrenched as the number one goalie in Pittsburgh for a really long time. Do they expect him to play 65 games? Um, no, probably not. I don't think they're going to ask him to do quite that yet. But, um, you know, in terms of durability, they want to see a little bit more from him. But he's the guy, um, before he ever won the Stanley Cup, uh, Mike Sullivan loved Matt Murray. So did Jim Rutherford. They always thought he was a future star. There was always a sense in Pittsburgh that Fleury would not be here through the end of his career because of Matt Murray. And you know what? When you watch the guy in big games uh, for a 23-year-old guy, man, I'll take him in a big game every single time he he is a cool customer, and uh, there's certainly a feeling that he's going to keep getting better. On the topic of goaltenders, a, a lot of love being passed Mark Andre Fleury's way this offseason, and, and it, it seemed to be justified with with the, uh, I guess the sacrifices, just who he seems to be as a human being. But is he as good as advertised? Who's the guy that you got to know? You know, I've been covering the Penguins for almost a decade, and 
uh, I've been lucky because it's been a really good group to deal with. Cindy Crosby is a great human being. I, I could go right down the list, but Mark Andre Fleury is just a little bit different. And I will never forget at a locker room clean-out day a couple of days after the Penguins won the Cup, the day after their parade, um, you know, for anybody who's been in the locker room during those things, you always, you know, wish everyone well for the summer, or shake a lot of hands, that kind of thing. Uh, after Flurry spoke with the media, there were about 25 or 30 media members, I would estimate. Every single one of us lined up single file in a line by his locker just to say goodbye to him. And, you know, I've never seen anything quite like it. I think that just illustrates the kind of human being he is. He is the most beloved teammate I've ever been around. Uh, you know, I was out in Vegas when uh, the trade was, or excuse me, when they, you know, selected and made that final, I should say, and, and he came out with the, the jersey on. And 10 minutes later, I saw Sidney Crosby, and Crosby had tears in his eyes. I mean, it was really hard for him uh, to deal with the reality, I think, that Mark andre Fleury was no longer his teammate. Those two were extraordinarily close, and uh, Fleury is, as advertised, just an unbelievably likable human being, heart of gold, not a mean bone in his body, great sense of humor. Uh, yeah, everybody here is going to miss him a lot. Yeah, the scene in the media room in Vegas, too, was crazy because everybody was lined up to talk to Flurry, and nobody was really lined up to talk to Crosby. Uh, specifically <laughs> on Crosby, uh, Josh, I mean, the last year and a half, is this some of the best? It's definitely some of the best. Is this the best hockey you've ever seen him play? It's up there. Um, I still think the most dominant I ever saw Crosby and he'll tell you this too, was the first half of the 2010-11 season when he got the concussion at the Winter Classic and was done for the season. He had, I think, 32 goals in his first 41 games that season. I don't know that we'll ever see him at that level again. Uh, however, you're right. Um, the last year and a half, um, as great as Connor McDavid is, uh, Crosby, to me, is still the best player in the league. And when you consider what he did, uh, to win the Cup in 16, win the Conn Smythe, win the World Cup, win the MVP, and he was by far the best player in that tournament. And then to win the Stanley Cup again, to win the Conn Smythe again, and especially what he did the last couple of games against Nashville. Um, yeah, I mean, this to me is one of the five best hockey players of all time. I think he's, he's fairly considered to be in that group now. I don't know how much longer he will maintain this pace. He just turned 30 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, usually when you get to that age, when you look at the all-time greats, when you look at Mario Gretzky, um, usually when they get to about that age, the numbers do start to decline. Um, that said, Crosby, I think, is in much better physical condition than those two guys were. So and he doesn't have quite the tread on his tires because of all the time he's missed. So maybe he can be dominant, you know, 33, 34. I think that's possible. But, uh, yeah, just his all-around game, the goal scoring, how much better he's got in that regard, still the brilliant playmaker. Um, he can beat you anyway, and he's so good defensively now, too, and he's such a wonderful two-way player. Um, it has been a treat to watch turn it on the year and a, last year and a half after that slump he had. Uh, there's no question he's at the height of his power right now. And last question for you, Josh, and sticking with Crosby, is there anything left that he needs to accomplish or can accomplish, or does he feel like he has anything left to prove? Well... I mean, he's certainly done it all. I mean, I don't know what else there really is for him to accomplish, quite honestly. Um, and it's such of a cliche to say, but it's really just about more Stanley Cups at this point. You know, he's won three. Um, Warren Mario only won two. Uh, Gretzky won four. Uh, does he want to win as many as Gretzky? You better believe he does. Uh, does he want to you know, lead his team to three straight Cups for the first time since any 
because that's what the 82 Islanders, I guess it would be. Sure, he does. So he doesn't really like talking about his legacy. He's just not really introspective by nature, I don't think. But for him, it's about winning at this point. If Connor McDavid wins the scoring title next year, and I'm sure Sid wants to win it, but I don't think he's going to lose any sleep over that. Um, he's just focused on April and May and June now. Uh, that's what it's all about. He'll tell you when you win the Stanley Cup, it's just this contagious feeling. You want more and more. And uh, he wants to see how many Stanley Cups he can win. And, and the way this team is constructed, why not? They should have some more chances to do it. And that, that's really his sole focus at this point. It's Josh Yoey. You can find him on Twitter at Josh Yoey underscore P-G-H. Josh, thanks so much for the time. Enjoy the, the rest of your uh, your shortened off season. <laughs> My pleasure, guys. Take care. Thanks, thanks Josh. Josh. Well, some interesting stuff there from Josh. Craig, I don't know where you want to start in terms of reacting. The fact that Crosby had two concussions last year, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was just that kind was of slipped of a, in there. Oh, really? What, what's the count now? And that's terrifying, it's isn't concerning, it? concerning, yeah. Yeah, of course. It, Knowing what we know, and, and it's still very limited about concussions, the more you have, the more susceptible you are to more. That's what the science is showing right now. And yeah. what is Sydney's count right now? That's oof, that's just scary. You don't want to hear that. And you you start thinking down the road, even after he's retired, what sort of impact does it have on his life? We, we knew that he had the one in the playoffs, but that you know there was, I guess, maybe the thought or at least the hope from. I would think even people that don't like the Penguins, you just don't want to see anybody get a ton of concussions, especially after we saw him lose nearly two years of his career, really, in the middle of it with that, that one against the uh, the Capitals and the uh, the Winter Classic that one year. I think there was the hope that that was maybe his first real one since then, but obviously that, that wasn't the case. You know, something Josh said in there, too, that is interesting. People view Crosby, there, there's, no, there's no middle ground. People either look at him as, oh, he gets every call, or... You know, you heard him say right there, Bobby Orr is even upset about how much he gets beat up, beaten up on the ice. I almost feel like it's kind of both. There are some uh, I plays... Do. I think the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah. Them. Yeah. You need to do a better job of protecting your superstars. Look what the NFL does with their quarterbacks. You, you need to have that... These are the guys that market your game. These are the guys that sell your game. And you, you want to believe that there's a level playing field for everybody on the ice. But there's also a business reality here. And people are going to be taking runs at those sorts of players because they want to take them out. They want to limit your potential of beating them. So take care of those guys. That, that's the thing. Yes, in a perfect world, you should be protecting every player. Like you, I, I can already hear the mm-hmm. devil's advocate saying, well, why are you protecting Crosby over anybody else? Well, it's, it's not that you're protecting him over anybody else, but he, and this is going to happen to Connor McDavid too, more people are hitting him harder Absolutely. and and bigger target, yep. willing to hit him in the head because it's only a two minute penalty and you take him off the ice. So you just have to be more aware of it. And I mean, the concussions they speak for themselves. He's not giving himself a concussion skating down the ice, so people are hitting him in the head. Uh, in terms of the the number three center, that one kind of stood out as well. They they don't have a solution there yet, and, and as Josh mentioned, they just lost Matt Cullen too, so they don't really have their number four center either. And they lost their entire penalty-killing unit, too. That's a, that you know, that's kind of an like issue. A, it was almost like Josh was like, oh, oh, and uh, they lost this penalty killer, too. It started yeah. going down the line. It's like everybody from the unit. They just can't take penalties this year. As long as they don't take penalties, they should be fine. But uh, if they're ever shorthanded, they could, have, they could have some issues. We mentioned the Phil Kessel hot dog thing. Of, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you all know the backstory with Steve Simmons there, but... I don't need to rehash all of that, but if you haven't seen the photo of him eating hot dogs out of a Stanley Cup, just just go on Twitter and search for Kessel and hot dogs. I think we retweeted it from our account, the, too. The, yeah, the Penguins tweeted. The, the official Penguins Twitter account tweeted it on August 14th. It's, it's just a hilarious photo. 
I count. Well, he's eating one hot dog. There are at least two more in the Stanley Cup. I love that he embraced it. You know, <laughs> because you know he gets asked about stuff. it all the time. Along those lines, it's interesting with without Rick Tockett there. When when Tockett first came here to Arizona, and it was like, well, that means Phil Kessel is coming to Arizona too. I just kind of brushed that off, and, and he's not coming to Arizona. But I, I do wonder if if Kessel is going to be there three years from now in Pittsburgh without Tockett, because now that they've won the two cups, I feel like we're hearing more and more about how important Tockett was to keeping everybody together. Because you remember the game against Ottawa where Kessel's yelling at Malkin and then somebody else, and then at nobody in particular, and all his teammates <laughs> are kind of just laughing at him, and then he scores the winning goal, but... You know, that could go sideways, too. Yeah, it's also interesting to hear that Mike Sullivan took that special trip to try and build the relationship a little better now that he knows he doesn't have that Kessel Whisperer on his staff anymore. <laughs> the Kessel Whisperer. <laughs> we have to call Rick Tockett that the first time we interview him in person. Uh, anything else stand out to you? Matt Murray, the only reason I asked that question, obviously he's the clear number one. He just won two Stanley Cups, and he was the main reason. Uh, and he was still a rookie last year. I just wonder how much we're going to see Antti Niemi. Maybe that's how I should have worded the question better. Just because, you know, Murray was, when he was a rookie two years ago, and he was also a rookie last year because he didn't play at all really two years ago except in the, the playoffs. So he only played 47 games last season as a starter. I just, I don't know how much you can assume you can bump him up to 65. Yeah, and I think that's sort of a feeling out process where you have to be really in tune with how he's feeling physically and mentally. If he's showing signs of fatigue, that's probably how you decide how much Antti Niemi plays. It's also going to be interesting to see what kind of goaltender Antti Niemi really is. Dallas was not a good defensive team. No. I think we could just go ahead and say that. Yes, they had goaltending issues, but it wasn't all on the goalies. They're just not a good defensive team. This is a guy who won a cup in Chicago. He did. Now, he's not the same guy he was back then. And, and I think if you talk to people who break down the technique and mechanics of a goaltender, they'll find some flaws with Antti Niemi. But... He did win a cup with Chicago, and he did have some successful years, so maybe he can sort of enjoy a little bit of a rebirth on his career when he's in this system. All right, one team that has no goaltending questions at all because they just gave all their money to Carey Price. <laughs> let's uh, let's preview the Canadians now with Marc-Antoine Godin of La Presse. All right, we're going to continue our summer preview series. This is team number 12 out of 31 that we've done, and we're going to talk about, I think, one of the most compelling teams in the NHL, the Montreal Canadiens. We're joined now by Marc-Antoine Godin of La Presse. You can find him on Twitter at M-A-G-O-D-I-N. Mark Antoine, thanks for joining us. Uh, I guess the My first, pleasure. I guess the first question is what are the expectations in Montreal realistically for this team going forward? Well, it's funny because Montreal is a market where there's a, a perceived pressure to win now tomorrow and the next year after that. Um, I say perceived because it was always assumed that Montreal could not accept a, a smart rebuild like, like the Leafs have done, for example, um, even if it has proven to be the, the best way to build, to build a winner. The Canadians, they, they've always operated under the assumption that the Habs fan would never accept such a plan. And uh, I, I must say, I, I beg to differ on that, but there's a... There's always this want to keep at least the, the illusion of competitiveness. It's it's paramount in Montreal. So this can this the, the Canadians are not going to say, well, you know, we're we're past our prime. They say that there's parity in the league and they've got a good shot at making the playoffs. And once they're in, who knows what can happen? So basically, that that's the line. But when you look at this team, it, it's really a team that's that's built to win now. When you look at the age of the core uh, of the uh, of the the star players on that team. But some, there's really a feeling that 
even with that group and and the fact that they're they're on top of their game, they're still falling short. So uh, it's it's going to be a concern this year. It's a, it's a crucial season uh, for the Canadians and for GM Marc Bergevin to uh, to pull this one off because you know you, you look at the results from the last uh, couple of years and it's really um, it has been underwhelming to say the least. All right, before we dive into the team itself, you mentioned the external expectations on this franchise. Anybody who's been to Montreal knows that this is a hockey mecca. There is a an electricity in the air in that building that few places can rival. Next year will mark the 25th yeah. anniversary of the Can- Canadiens' last Stanley Cup. How much does that bother fans in that great hockey city? Yeah, well, I don't think that the anniversary has really hit the people yet. Um and I don't know if it will, to be honest. Maybe it's it will be mainly an opportunity for the media to look at the big picture once more. But let's not forget that this 25th anniversary, it's not just a Montreal problem, if you can call it a problem. <laughs> it, it's a Canadian problem. Yes. There's no team from Canada that has won the Cup since the Canadians in 93. So for a sport that many Canadians like to claim as theirs, it's an awful long time. Now, the, are the Habs the the Canadian team that's best positioned to end that drought? Well, for for a few years, with so many Canadian teams that were struggling, well, you could say yes. But now the, the Edmonton Oilers are really coming. The Toronto Maple Leafs, they might become better than Canadians as, as soon as this season. So there are other teams that are trending up, but not the Canadians. That's, that, that's for sure. Mark Antoine, looking at, at the biggest move they made in the offseason, adding Jonathan Drouin, can you just sort of walk us through the thinking behind making that trade to acquire him? And, and I guess the second part of that question is, does adding Drouin sort of offset the loss of, of Alex Radulov? Yeah, well, the, the, the Hats needed an injection of talent up front. I think it's been, it's been true for years. They've been uh, hampered by questionable drafting and, and development. So it, it was a bold move. Uh, the negotiations for Drouin dated back a, a year, around the time that Drouin was in dispute with the Lightning. So he's a fit with the Canadians for a number of reasons. He, he could be an option at center, where the team has struggled for, what, 20 years. Uh, he's extremely creative. He's an elite passer. Uh, whether he plays with Alex Galchenyuk or with Max Pacioretty, he's, he's pretty sure to have a guy next to him that's got a, a great release and who could finish his plays. Um, also, Duane is young. The team was in a position to pay him for his prime years, so that's good. Plus, he, he's a local guy, so this has been—it's always been a, a factor that's dear to the heart of fans to be able to cheer for a local talent. So it's—it's it, it's really it's in the DNA of the team. And unfortunately, elite talent out of Quebec is not a, as common a, a, as it used to be. But um, you know, there's when you look at at, at Radulov, uh, you, you were mentioning also the fact: is he going to uh, uh, make it uh, make its loss uh, compensate for the loss of Radulov? Well, I would answer yes and no because you might be better off with Dwayne than with Radulov. But at the same at the time the deal was made uh, and uh, they acquired Dwayne uh, from the Tampa Bay Lightning, the idea was: well, in the current state of affairs, we recognize that we need to bolster our, our offense. So we're adding Duluain to the pool. So that's great. With Duluain, with Pacioretty, Galchenyuk, Radulov, Gallagher, Lekkonen, you got a pot in offense. But it turns out that Radulov left, and now Duluain has to be seen as a replacement for Radulov, except that it costs you your best prospect in the pipeline to do so. Yeah, and I'm, I refer to that to uh, Mikhail Sergachev. So instead of bolstering the offense, it costs you your last year's first-round pick just to keep it somewhat even. So in that process, 
we can't say that really the Canadians are, are, are winners in that. All right, a lot to unravel in what you just told us. Lots of good information there, but let's start with one of the first things that you brought up. Alex Gelchaniak, maybe he plays with Joanne. What is the feeling about him? They obviously re-signed him to a three-year deal with uh, an AAV mm-hmm. just under $5 million. Did they try to trade him? Do they believe he's a part of their long-term plan? And is he a center or is he a wing? <laughs> well, they, first off, they, they did try to trade him. Uh, around the draft, there was, I was told there was really a 50-50 chance that he'd be traded. I think that they did the right thing holding on to him. First, because Galchenyuk's value uh, was as, uh, at its lowest this summer. He's, he's young and talented forward who has shown that he could produce. But the way the season ended for him, I mean, he started the playoffs as a fourth-line winger. Uh, it was a hard sell to get the same sort of talent in return. So the Canadians were okay to trading him, but reportedly they were asking for a lot. So in the end, they signed him for three years, very friendly cap hit at four. Point nine million, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, four point nine. Uh, so it, it's a nice, nice length where they show the player a certain level of commitment. They show that they're willing to continue working with uh, with him, and it's a contract that's eminently tradable if he doesn't show the improvement that they're looking for. So I think it's a very good deal uh, for both parties. And as for the position, yeah, I, I was I was giggling a little bit because Galchenyuk himself is, is fed up with being asked about: Are you a center or your wing? <laughs> Um, there is there's no doubt that he needs to understand the, the defensive side of the job as a center. Uh, he was, I would say, he was a liability there. But if the Canadians had invested in him as a center from day one, because they they had a need for a young first line center, those worries would have been resolved by now. But it's been a constant yo-yo between uh, wing and center, center and wing, and sure, there, there's an improvement. There is, that's to be made, but I know that many people in Montreal, they say, oh, he's not a center, not only because of his defensive game, but also because he's, he might be more of a shooter than a passer. But production-wise, is he more of a winger? I mean, we've seen, uh, we've seen him at his best when he was centering quality wingers. So I don't know how it's going to turn out. They, they brought in Dwayne, who's also an option at, at center. But in my mind, one of these two has, has to become the number one center of this team over the course of the season. With Mikhail Sergachev dealt away now, what does that do to the blue line both you know this season and going forward? And then I guess the second half of that is is who is Montreal's top remaining prospect at this point? <laughs> well, the blue line, yeah. The blue line, is, it, I would say that it's the $8.4 million question. That's the amount under the cap that Matt Bergevin has right now. Um, so for a team that looks like an unfinished product, you could assume that he's got something up his sleeve to improve the defense. I mean, sure, he's got holds on, on the offense, but knowing how the front office operates, they, they usually put a premium on defensemen. So right now they have a very interesting group of defensemen uh, depth-wise with Jordy Benn, David Schlemko, Mark Streit, Brendan Davidson, Joe Morrow, uh, that Czech defenseman Jakob Bjerabek that they signed out of uh, the KHL. So they got great depth. What they don't have, though, is that bona fide top four defenseman. Heck, I would say top two is the real need here. Mm-hmm. And and maybe there's something in the works to use all that cap space that was created by not resigning Radulov and, and Andre Markov uh, to to improve the blue line. But you look at it right now. I mean, at this point, the, the market is thin. It's exactly the right time of the year to to trade for a valuable defenseman. And as Marc Bergevin often says, the better ones, the teams they keep them. So. 
Uh, I'm not sure if Sergachev would have played in the top four this season, but it's it's as close a top four as they had. So the quantity is interesting, but the quality, especially in terms of puck moving defensemen and and guys on the power plays, is is very thin. Let's stay with that. And uh, sorry, it's just only my the, the first part of your question. What was the second part again? Well, just who, who is Montreal? I mean, in in terms of the pipeline, defense or forward, yeah. who are their best prospects at this point? Oh, um, well, you know, there's always a. There's always, when there's a draft, there's a hype around the guys that they just drafted. So you tend to think that immediately those guys, they, they, they're bumped to the top of the list. So uh, I know that the Habs are very happy uh, with uh, with Ryan Paling and Yoni Ikonen, their top two uh, draft picks from this summer. They played very well, the World Junior Summer Showcase. Um, up front, I mean, uh, the cup is pretty bare. You're looking at uh, Nikita Sherbak. Uh, he's a winger who can be pretty dynamic, uh, but he seems to me like the sort of guy who's going to be either a second liner or an American League player. No, nothing in between. Mm. Uh, Charles Udon, young Quebec player, he was very productive in the AHL last year. Uh, he didn't get much of much of a chance, but he'll have to seize it this time around when he gets it. And on defense, you have uh, Noah Jolson. He's a former first round pick. He's got a bit of everything. He'll play. Um, but it's not it's not a team that's really that's got tons of uh, of prospects coming in the pipeline. Diving into that blue line just a little bit more, why not give Andre Andre Markov a one year deal? How much how much will his absence mean? And then also adding Carl Alsner, what does that do for this team? Yeah, well, the Habs wanted to give Markov a one year deal. Markov wanted two, and when he realized that the the Habs wouldn't bulge and that and that he himself didn't really want to go play for another team. Well, he came back to the Canadians and said, okay, I'll take one year. But most probably the amount that he asked for that one season was too much for Marc Bergevin. Uh, but honestly, a, a one-year deal, it would not have compromised the money that's allocated to Carey Price's next contract. And and Markov, even if he has slowed down, he, he would have remained the best option for them to play on that top pairing. So sure, I mean for what I'd say six million. For six million, you should have a defenseman that gives you more than what Markov gives you at this stage of his career. But again, are these guys available? Doesn't look like it. So I would have had personally Markov playing next to Shea Weber any time instead of of Carl Alsner, the uh, the guy they brought in. So it's for Markov, it's really a strange outcome and and a bit of a bittersweet uh, ending to the re- long-time relationship. I mean, obviously, everybody knows he was the, the long, he was with the Habs for the longest time. So, um, so, so we'll see. As far as Carl Alsner goes, well, he um, the, the Canadians had to improve the left side, and they 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 see good value in stay-at-home defensemen and guys who can who can play a ton of minutes, and they had their eyes set on him from the very beginning. Uh, and he must have thought that he wouldn't gotten, he wouldn't be getting anything better anywhere else because Montreal is the only city that he visited prior to July 1st. And on the very on the first day of UFA signings, he was the only one to fetch a five-year deal. So the problem, the way I see it, is that Alsner doesn't really meet their pressing need for puck-moving defensemen, and he's already showing a bit of uh, signs of decline in Washington last year. So the best-case scenario for Alsner is that. He finds his earlier form that I agree won't make him any faster, but still he would log those minutes, play effective shutdown role, and be a good penalty killer. 
maybe never worthy of $4.6 million, but if he plays his best hockey, salary issue is it takes the back burner. But my concern is that his career might take a similar path to Dan Girardi, for example, who had already started to decline when he signed his, his extension with the Rangers. So you could see the ending from a mile away with Girardi, and I hope that for the Canadian's sake that Alsner, even if he's only 28, he doesn't become a liability down the road. Mm-hmm. Gary Price, uh, so consistent. You know, he's the best goalie in the world, but he's now signed through 2026, and they've got a lot of money tied up in him. He'll be 38 in the final year of his contract. Is there any sort of concern that that contract could come back to bite them down the line, or was it just necessity? Well, that, that, it's an excellent question. Price has got a history of knee problems, and you hope that it won't come back to haunt him over time. There are goaltenders that have remained uh, effective through their mid-30s. I mean, Enric Lindquist is 35. So it's it's a reasonable gamble. That being said, well, the Habs only had two options. Either they would act accordingly to their past behavior and, and work and and work based on the idea that Price is their franchise player and that he's their first key to success. Or you trade him. And Marc Bergevin did not want to trade him. He said, you saw what happened when he was injured. We missed the playoffs. He's the best, the best at his position, and we're okay paying him in this manner. So it remains, though, it remains to be proven that a team can win the Stanley Cup with a goalie that is the highest-paid player on the team. We haven't seen that so far in the salary cap era, and let alone a guy who's played in, in, in Jonathan Tate's and in Patrick Kane territory. So if, in his prime, Carey Price has not been able to help the Canadians win, uh, now that he takes a bigger chunk of the salary cap and there's less money to improve other areas, is the team in a better situation? I don't know. Uh, the Habs could have made the bold move and, and trade him pretty much at, at peak value, get valuable assets and sign a guy, let's say, like like Ben Bishop or something. And they probably would have been in a position to strengthen themselves more up front and at the blue line. But uh, but now Carey is going to carry that weight a long time, as <laughs> the, the Beatles sing. Uh <laughs> He's going to be the guy more than ever, and he, he personally he's okay with that. He's he's got he built tremendous uh, mental resilience over the years. Um, but you know, it's it, the, the, my final point on, on on price would be also that for he's a, purely as a as a selling point that they chosen to trade Carey Price, the only true superstar on the team. Two years after trading P.K. Subban, who was super popular among the fans, um, and in the meantime, the fan base is, is a bit skeptical of the progress of the team, it would have been a tough sell. So, then, no, to answer your question, they choice but to, but to sign the guy and pay a premium for him. A couple other things uh, in, in terms of personnel before we ask you a couple of big-picture questions and let you go. Uh, Thomas Placanis becomes a, an unrestricted free agent after the season. Max Pacioretty in two seasons. What what are what are the futures for these two players in Montreal? Well, I think that it's going to be Thomas Placanis' last season in Montreal. Uh, he's more fit for third line duties now, and you have young players like Philip Dano and, and and Michael McCarron who ideally would settle into that role within uh, a year or two. So there comes a time when you have to give spots to, to younger players to help them progress, and I suspect that Placanitz will become a sort of a hindrance to that. He's been super serviceable. He's been a good soldier, 
and I mean, and I really like him. I've defended him numerous times, but uh, at the same time, I feel like it, for him at this point, it's just a matter of hoping he can bounce back a little bit offensively, stop stop the decline in production, and put himself in a position where he's going to be able to get more than a one-year deal. Um, as for Pacioretty, well, he's a gifted goal scorer. He's, he's, a, he's a bargain for what he brings, and anywhere he would go, he wouldn't have the same pressure that he feels in Montreal. So in my view, um, you know, he's much more likely to be re-signed. They, obviously, they would have to wait until July 1st for that. Um, but in the, in the last six, six seasons combined, there's only three players in the league that score more goals than Pacioretty. And he's been the Canadiens' top scorer in each of those seasons, too. So he's going to have his payday there, there's no doubt. Uh, and things would really have to turn sour for the team for management to consider trading him. What was the uh, the initial thought on on Claude Julien's job, uh, the, the job he did with Montreal, you know, late in the season, and how is his approach different than that of Michel Therrien? <clears throat> different from Michel Therrien? Well, uh, the, uh, the main difference is, uh, I would say, is uh, human relationships. Uh, Therrien, uh, <laughs> he, he's got that aggressive style that, that aimed at getting the absolute best out of everybody even if it meant rubbing them the wrong way uh, a lot of the time. So that, that method, it, it wears out at some point. And Claude Julien, right from the get-go, he brought a, a much more positive atmosphere within the group. Uh, it created an environment where players can believe more in themselves. And, uh, and it suggests that the team believes in them too at the same time. You know, when, when, when the coach is positive, it sends the right, the right message. He was in Boston for a decade, and even at the end, I mean, uh, most of his core players were still on board with, with what he was uh, uh, proposing. So he had managed to find a way to renew his message and, and keep it fresh for a long time. And it's not all coaches who can do that. But he's a man, Julien is a man who's solidly in place, I would say. You know, he knows the environment. He's been there before. Doesn't feel threatened. And uh, in terms of uh, on-ice philosophy... Well, Terry and Julien are, are not that different. Uh, Julien has probably put a bigger focus on puck possession over the years than, than Terry has. But I think it's, it's fair to say that they're both defense-first coaches. Julien, uh, he, he hates to be labeled as a defensive-minded coach. He argues always that he focuses on ways to get the puck and keep it, but that he won't hold back his, his most talented forwards once they're on the attack. But you look at the lineup, uh, high-end talent is, is scarce up front, so they better be tight defensively. All right, Mark Antoine, last question before we let you go. And you alluded to this right at the top of the interview when you said it was a very important season for him. Is Mark Bergevin's job in jeopardy this season? Well, my, my answer would be not yet, but it will all depend on this, this year's results. Uh, majority owner Jeff Molson, he, he has shown tremendous public support for Bergevin in the past. I mean, he gave him a seven-year extension after three three seasons as a, as general manager. So he's under contract until 2022. It's pretty it's a pretty big commitment. Uh, but since then, I mean, Jeff Molson got involved uh, to have PK Subban line uh, signed uh, long term. Eventually, Bergeron traded uh, Subban for uh, for the sake of his core. Uh, he fired his head coach, replaced him with a guy he had to give a five-year deal to. So Julien's deal finishes the same year as Bergevin. Uh, 
and in the meantime, there there has been no indication that the team is getting closer to the Stanley Cup. So the Canadiens brand at some point will only grow with results. So at this point, is Bergevin's job in jeopardy? I, I don't think so. Um, but he's got he's got to show Jeff Molson that he's got a plan, that he's sticking to it, and that this plan works in getting the team closer to uh, to the promised land. And I am not convinced that this is the direction the team is is going right now. Mark Antoine, this is great insight. Thanks so much for the time and enjoy the upcoming season. All right. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Thanks Mark Antoine. That's Mark Antoine Godin. I'll tell you what, we don't get to talk Canadians as much mm-hmm. here. I mean, it's just they're an Eastern Conference team. We don't focus on them as much. I was struck during that interview. I could almost hear Craig Morgan thinking, "This is why you have beat writers on," because he was—I mean—he was throwing stuff out there, like the Galchenyuk stuff, that he—it was basically fifty-fifty that he was going to get traded uh, at, at the the draft last season or at the deadline. It's—I uh, mean, we we knew that that was a possibility, but obviously, you can only know so much in Phoenix about what's going on really behind the scenes in Montreal. Galchenyuk is such a wild card for that team. Sure is. If he was available, I'd be lining up to trade for him. What's interesting, something that he told me, you know, and I, I don't think he'd mind me putting this out there because I think he's put it out there himself, but I, I think there was some disagreement over whether they should trade him. I think Mark Bergevin did want to deal him. Claude Julien did not. And so that was that was part of it. And that, that sort of hints at what's going on internally with that organization as well. Who has the power? Who, who has... Who has the say it, and influence in what gets done there? It, you look at Galchenyuk; it's it's such, it's such a difficult decision because you see potential there, but there's so many question marks, including where where the heck does he play? Yeah. Can he can he take the next step? Uh, will he dedicate himself defensively? But do you want to give up on that kind of player when you need those kind of players? Interesting too the way he described Montreal's offseason in the sense that you went out there and you got Jonathan Drouin mm-hmm. to take a step forward, but you had to give up Mikhail Sergachev to do it. Now, that's fine. You think and you're then taking you lost step, Alex Radzwell, Yeah, too. but then you almost kind of went back to where you were, except you lost Sergachev. So it's, it's, I don't know, that's, I don't know that I feel quite as good about Montreal as I did a few, you know, 15 minutes ago or whatever, just because you know they have that pressure to win, and I don't know how much better they got. I will say I wasn't going to ask him about Mark Bergevin. I was just going to wait until you said it because he pronounces his name so much cooler than I do. <laughs> so you were going to have to ask the question. We have a, an entirely new pronunciation of Jonathan Druand as well, so we'll stop mispronouncing. Actually, we'll go back and listen to the tape so we get that right. Yeah, that one for sure. And then I know Jonathan Taves isn't Canadian, but the way he said his name was, that's how I'm going to start saying it. But yeah, Druand. <laughs> I mean, he's. It makes it's, sense that his name would be pronounced that way. I mean, the overriding feel you you get from talking to Mark Antoine is this team really didn't make any progress in the off season. He he doesn't feel like they're moving forward. They as we just talked about with, with the acquisition of Jonathan Joanne, they had to give up too much to get him. So they really it's it's almost like they're running in place. They committed all this money to Carey Price, which you can certainly question. It doesn't feel like they're moving forward. And if they don't move forward, does the GM's job then become? Does he become expendable? You know, real quick on price before we wrap up. That's such a tough spot to be in because mm. you remember, you know, the Coyotes. They get to the Western Conference Final and they were basically stuck. Like you have to pay Mike Smith what five and a half million a year for a few years. To right. Keep if him. you looked at the options that off season, there there just weren't that many. So you either risk losing the guy that just got you there, or yeah, you, you commit the money. Now there were options this year, but good luck telling the fans in Montreal that you're giving up on Carey Price when right. he's done nothing to warrant being given up on. But to put it in perspective, they're basically paying him now twice as much as the Coyotes were paying Mike Smith for longer. 
So, yes, he's a much better goalie. But will he be? Yeah, I mean, we're talking we're talking through 2026. That's a while. It's crazy. So, all right. These these I'll tell you what, not like all of the the guests we've had on haven't been insightful, but these two today specifically there's very few times I hear something about the Penguins that I didn't know, and there was a lot that Marc Antoine told us about the Canadians that I really wasn't necessarily thinking about. So these guys were good. Again, that's why we have beat writers. Yeah. Boots on the ground. Uh, next week, we're going to have, I lost the list, Jeremy Rutherford on to talk about the St. Louis Blues, Steve Carp on to talk about the Vegas Golden Knights, and then we're going to talk about the Detroit Red Wings. Jamie's so, going to have a lot to say on that, assuming he's back. Yeah, Jamie Eisner will be our special guest to talk about his favorite team, the Detroit Red Wings. All right, for Craig Morgan, I'm Luke Lipinski. Thanks for listening to the Natural Hattrick Podcast. Maddie, Maddie.